Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. We have got a few episodes in our podcast archive that connect in some way to the movement for women's suffrage in both the United States and the UK. One thing that's come up a few times in those shows is violence committed against the women who were protesting for the right to vote, often at the hands of law enforcement. For example, in our two-parter on Sophia Duleep Singh, we talked about a protest in London that came to be known as Black Friday, and that's when about 200 protesters from the Women's Social and Political Union were assaulted by police outside of Parliament. In the United States, we have alluded to but never directly discussed a similarly infamous event, and that was the Night of Terror, which was a November 1917 incident in which the guards at Occoquan Workhouse assaulted and terrorized 33 women from the National Woman's Party. They were part of a group known as the Silent Sentinels. They were serving sentences of up to six months for charges like obstructing sidewalk traffic after peacefully protesting in front of the White House. So we're going to start by ticking through a really quick recap of women's suffrage organizations in the United States, because this whole story grows out of a series of ideological splits that happened within the movement. There were, of course, other suffrage organizations besides the ones that we're about to talk about, all with their own goals and strategies. But these are the ones that are directly connected to today's story. The Seneca Falls Convention in 1848, which we've talked about before, was the first dedicated convention for women's rights in the United States. And at the time, the idea of women getting the right to vote was really pretty radical. The resolution to add the right to vote to the convention's Declaration of Sentiments passed by only a very narrow margin. After the Seneca Falls Convention... Women's rights leaders and organizers continued to meet at national and local conventions for more than a decade before the movement was put on hold during the Civil War. And once the war was over, women's rights leaders found common ground with people who were trying to protect the rights of newly freed slaves and other black citizens. And the result was the American Equal Rights Association, formed in 1866, which was dedicated to pursuing equal rights for all citizens. This organization didn't last, though. Three years later, attendees at its annual meeting disagreed over whether to support the 15th Amendment to the Constitution, which had been passed by Congress and was awaiting ratification by the states. The 15th Amendment guaranteed voting rights without regard to race or prior condition of servitude, but it didn't have any mention of sex. The result of this disagreement was a schism within the organization. Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton launched the National Woman Suffrage Association, dedicated to fighting for voting rights only for women. Lucy Stone, Julia Ward Howe, and others who supported the 15th Amendment formed the American Woman Suffrage Association. We talk about some more of the details in our past podcast on all of this and how that separation took place uh, in our episode about Frederick Douglass. Yeah, it's part of this long arc, but we we don't want to repeat all those details again here. In 1890, after 21 years of operating separately from one another, the American Woman Suffrage Association and the National Woman Suffrage Association once again merged, forming the National American Woman Suffrage Association, or NAWSA. There's some disagreement over whether to spell out the letters or to say NAWSA. 
Its leaders included Lucy Stone, Susan B. Anthony, and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, so basically the leaders of the previous organizations that had combined. And its purpose was, once again, to secure the right to vote for women. This time, the strategy was to start small and to get individual municipalities and states to grant women the right to vote. According to this strategy, getting enough state-to-state success would put pressure on the federal government to pass nationwide legislation for women's suffrage. And this brings us, at last, to the women directly involved in today's episode. Even though it focused on winning the vote state-by-state and not through Congress, the NAWSA never disbanded its congressional committee. And in 1912, Alice Paul and Lucy Burns were appointed to be the committee's joint chairs. Both women had spent some time in England, and they'd been involved with Emmeline Pankhurst and the Women's Social and Political Union. That was the more radical arm of the suffrage movement in Britain, whose members were the ones proudly reclaiming the derisive nickname of suffragettes. Paul and Burns were directly familiar with WSPU tactics like vandalism and hunger strikes, uh, which were intended to aggressively draw attention to the issue of women's rights and to put pressure on the government for a solution. Paul and Burns had actually met for the first time at a police station in London after being arrested at a protest. Paul and Burns both wanted the NAWSA to adopt at least some of the WSPU's tactics. And they weren't at all content to allow the Congressional Committee to languish as the organization focused on local and state rather than national efforts. So they convinced the NAWSA to organize an enormous protest parade, the Woman's Suffrage Progression, to be held on March 3, 1913, and to be accompanied by open-air meetings and speeches. This day was chosen for a specific reason. It was the day before the inauguration of President Woodrow Wilson. The NAWSA was no stranger to parades. Parades were a long-standing part of the organization's strategy, along with organizing conventions and meetings and publishing literally hundreds of books and pamphlets. But the 1913 parade was much bigger than anything the NAWSA had arranged before, and it was also intended to be a national event rather than a local or a regional one. Between 5,000 and 8,000 marchers were involved in this parade, along with 20 floats, nine marching bands, and four mounted brigades. It was to end with an allegorical tableau outside the U.S. Treasury Building, in which women who were dressed as liberty, justice, charity, peace, and hope would symbolically surround a central figure representing Columbia. Leading the parade was activist and labor lawyer Inez Milholland. If that name rings a bell from from past podcasts, she later married Eugen Boisevan, who remarried Edna St. Vincent Millay after Milholland's death. Ida B. Wells Barnett also marched in the parade with the Illinois contingent, refusing to comply with the racial segregation that organizers were encouraging for the participating groups. Other well-known participants included Helen Keller, Nellie Bly, and Catherine Dexter McCormick. The parade started off well, aside from a delay in getting started. But as it moved down Pennsylvania Avenue, the street became completely blocked by a huge crowd of spectators, most of them men who had come to Washington for the inauguration. As the crowd closed in on the marchers, they were trapped. In addition to heckling, taunting, tripping, and even assaulting the marchers, the men, who vastly outnumbered the women, blocked the parade route completely, including trapping ambulances in this log jam. More than a 100 women were injured and had to be hospitalized. 
This also completely took the crowd away from the train station that was uh, intended to meet the incoming president. So when Woodrow Wilson got off his train and was like, where is everybody? People said they are all at the suffrage parade. Police overwhelmingly did not intervene in this chaos. They didn't really do anything to maintain crowd control as the spectators completely blocked the street. A cavalry unit had to eventually be dispatched from Fort Myer to restore order. Police Chief Richard Sylvester weathered heavy criticism over the handling of the march, especially since there were no similar incidents on Inauguration Day the next day. This led to a congressional investigation that ultimately exonerated Sylvester of malicious intent toward the suffragists while also criticizing his lack of action on the day. Even though he was ultimately dismissed as police chief, a lot of people in the suffrage movement felt like the whole incident had been whitewashed. Following the parade, the NAWSA was worried that Paul and Burns were simply too radical, that their methods were too aggressive, and that they might turn to the sorts of vandalism and property damage that was becoming a hallmark of the movement's most radical wing in the United Kingdom. So in 1913, Paul and Burns struck out on their own to form the Congressional Union for Women's Suffrage, or CU. They remained involved with the NAWSA's Congressional Committee for a time, but their ideological differences ultimately led the two organizations to sever all ties with one another. You hear over and over again when reading about this that Paul and Burns were just too radical. And I was expecting in doing the research that I was going to find that they were doing things like setting people's houses on fire, which was happening in the in the UK. No, that was not what was happening at all, which we're going to talk about more in a minute, they, they were really not actions that we would consider radical today. In 1916, the two women established the Women's Party of Western Voters. Several states in the West had already granted women the right to vote, and this party encouraged the women who were living in those states to vote for candidates who supported women's rights and a national push for women's suffrage. This included campaigning against Woodrow Wilson, since no progress had been made toward getting women the right to vote during his first term in office. Meanwhile, the CU continued working toward voting rights in the states where women still couldn't vote. Then, in 1917, the two groups merged to form the National Woman's Party, or NWP. The silent sentinels who were arrested in 1917 were part of the NWP, and we're going to talk more about that after we first pause for a little sponsor break. Woodrow Wilson was elected to his second term as president in 1916, the National Woman's Party decided to put more direct pressure on the White House and Congress to make some kind of progress toward national voting rights for women. They became even more determined to do this after having a meeting with the president on January 9th, 1917, in which he told NWP members to concert public opinion on behalf of woman suffrage. The next day, they started a protest directly outside the White House that would continue for months. In the NWP's weekly journal, which was The Suffragist, Elizabeth Cady Stanton's daughter, Harriet Stanton Blanche, described it this way, quote, We must go to him every day. We must have a continuous delegation to the President of the United States if he is to realize the never-ceasing, insistent demand of women that he take action where he is responsible. We may not be admitted within the doors, but we can at least stand at the gates. We may not be allowed to raise our voices and speak to the president, but we can address him just the same, because our message will be inscribed upon the banners which we carry in our hands. Let us post our silent sentinels at the gates of the White House. 
And this was the protest that was viewed as extremely radical at the time, standing outside the White House with banners. Silently. (laughs) Lucy Burns played a huge part in this protest. She was often the one leading the pickets who silently demonstrated outside the White House every day, no matter what the weather, sometimes enduring illness and frostbite in the process. For the sake of both publicity and trying to draw more women into the movement, the protests sometimes had theme days, such as a particular college day or working women day. That one was actually held on Sunday, so the women protesting could do it without losing a day's pay. At first, the president tolerated their presence there in front of the White House. On the way in or out of the White House, he would smile and tip his hat. And on particularly cold days, he would invite them in for tea, although they consistently turned down that invitation. And although passersby often heckled the silent sentinels, the protest got a mixed but overall not violent reaction from the general public in its early months. All of this changed when the United States entered World War I on April 6th, after which point the silent sentinels started encountering more and more resistance to their picket outside the White House. Many people already felt like their place was at home, not picketing on the sidewalk. There were also calls for national unity in the face of the United States' involvement in the war and a growing sense that it was just not the time for women to be focused on their own voting rights rather than other national concerns. Passersby started more aggressively harassing the women that were protesting, and the president eventually lost his patience as well. He had previously told the D.C. police to leave the women alone as long as they weren't blocking the sidewalk. But he finally rescinded that instruction, and the first wave of arrests took place on June 22, 1917. That day, Wilson wrote a letter to his daughter in which he said that the suffragists were, quote, bent on making their cause as obnoxious as possible. Once again, by standing outside the White House with signs. Silently. Silently. Between then and November of 1917, hundreds of women, including women from at least 26 different states, were arrested and charged with obstructing sidewalk traffic, unlawful assembly, or the nebulous violating an ordinance. Also, there are lots of pictures of this protest, and they really consistently show the women who were protesting either walking in a single-file line or standing single-file either right up against or right in front of the White House fence. They were definitely not obstructing the sidewalk. Although the Espionage Act had been passed in part to try to cut down on anti-war protests, and it could have been applied to the suffrage demonstrations as well, the women often carried large banners emblazoned with quotes from the president's speeches about freedom and democracy. The administration was smart enough to know that it would not look good to use the Espionage Act to prosecute women who were carrying banners that were bearing the president's own words. So by July, after the the arrests had been going on for a couple of weeks, the president had started to consider the whole protest to be an embarrassment, especially since several prominent women were now in jail for it. So he pardoned all of the suffragists who had been incarcerated. At first, they refused to accept his pardon, but then they did, and then they went right back to picketing at the White House. As the protest went on, the banners the women were carrying became more and more provocative. One read, Kaiser Wilson, have you forgotten your sympathy for the Germans because they were not self-governed? 20 million American women are not self-governed. Take the beam out of your own eye. 
Another read to the envoys of Russia. President Wilson and Envoy Root are deceiving Russia. They say we are a democracy. Help us win a world war so that democracies may survive. We, the women of America, tell you America is not a democracy. 20 million American women are denied the right to vote. President Wilson is the chief opponent of their national enfranchisement. Help us make this nation really free. Tell our government that it must liberate its people before it can claim free Russia as an ally. As an aside, that is a lot of words to put on banners. They were very large banners. Yes, I have seen them, and I'm always sort of amazed that they managed to get all of that on there. (laughs) But just in case people were wondering, yes, all of those words were on banners. Uh, These banners particularly outraged members of the military, some of whom began harassing and even, even assaulting the suffragists, as well as destroying their banners. Police did little to intervene other than arresting the picketers themselves. In October, D.C. police announced that anyone arrested for protesting outside the White House would be sentenced to six months in prison. For obstructing the sidewalk. When normally, if anyone was obstructing the sidewalk, it was the people protesting that, or people heckling them, not the protesters themselves. But they brought those hecklers to the sidewalk is the logic that probably got used at the time. Yeah. Nevertheless, they persisted with Alice Paul leading the picket line from the NWP headquarters to the White House itself the very next day after that announcement was made, carrying a banner that said, the time has come to conquer or submit for there is but one choice. We have made it. As promised, they were once again arrested, convicted, and imprisoned. As this cycle of arrests and incarcerations wore on, law enforcement tried a new approach, making the whole process so unpleasant and humiliating that perhaps the women would just give up. Conditions were poor at every prison and workhouse in the area, but at Occoquan Workhouse, they were particularly bad. Silent sentinels started being transferred to the workhouse from the more commonly used district jail. At the workhouse, their personal possessions, including toiletries, toothbrushes, and combs, were confiscated, and they weren't given any kind of replacements apart from one single bar of soap that was shared by everyone in the dormitory. Most of the suffragists were actually afraid to use this communal bar of soap due to the risk of spreading disease. The women who were typically incarcerated at the workhouse had very little medical care, and some of them had active infections of diseases like tuberculosis and syphilis. The food was largely inedible and infested with worms, dead flies, and mouse droppings. Usually, the only water available was in an open bucket that was shared by everyone. Bedding was so filthy that the matrons who had to handle it during inspections and searches did so wearing gloves, although these women were still expected to sleep on it. The suffragists were also denied exercise, reading, and writing materials, legal counsel, and visitors. Prison authorities also tried to make the silent sentinels uncomfortable by using racism as a wedge. They integrated the dormitory where the suffragists slept. This was obviously during the Jim Crow era still. They arranged the beds so that they alternated with a white suffragist in one bed and then a black woman who was often serving a sentence for prostitution in the next bed. They also assigned some of the suffragists the job of repainting the, quote, colored restrooms. Meanwhile, many of the suffragists tried to make the argument that they should be treated as political prisoners and not common criminals. 
They tried to advocate for better conditions, sometimes for themselves and sometimes for the workhouse population as a whole. Suffragists who made a fuss were punished for it. Uh, At least one matron was fired, allegedly for treating the incarcerated suffragists kindly. As all of this stretched on, several of the suffragists turned to a tactic that had already been in use in the British movement for women's suffrage, which was hunger strikes. And as had happened in the UK, prison officials were turning to force-feeding them, which was a painful, embarrassing, and dangerous process. Although some people were force-fed in the workhouse, Alice Paul was actually transferred to the psychotic ward of the district jail and then force-fed there three times a day. On the night of November 14, 1917, conditions at Occoquan Workhouse got much worse. A group of women had been sent there after being arrested on the 10th, many of them for at least the second time. Occoquan Superintendent William H. Whitaker told the facility's guards to teach the women a lesson. They were physically dragged from the dormitory and other common areas to, quote, punishment cells and beaten, many of them left manacled or handcuffed overnight and threatened with being gagged and straitjacketed. In Eunice Dana Brannon's account, quote, I firmly believe that no matter how we behave, Whitaker was determined to attack us as part of the government's plan to suppress the picketing. There were six to ten guards in the room, others collected on the porch, 40 to 50 in all. These in with Whitaker when he first entered. Instantly, the horror. The furniture was overturned and the room was a scene of havoc. Whitaker in the center of the room directed the whole attack, inciting the guards to every brutality. In the account of Mary Nolan, age 73, quote, I saw Dorothy Day brought in. The two men handling her were twisting her arms above her head. Then suddenly they lifted her up and banged her down over the arm of an iron bench, twice. Nolan's account continues. At the end of the corridor, they pushed me through a door. Then I lost my balance and fell against the iron bed. Mrs. Kosu struck the wall. Then they threw two mats in and two dirty blankets. She continues a little bit later in her account. Quote, we had lain there a few minutes trying to get our breath when Mrs. Lewis doubled over and handled like a sack of something was thrown in. Her head struck the iron bed. We thought she was dead. She didn't move. We were crying over her when we lifted her to the pad on my bed. Mrs. Kosu had a heart attack that night, which her cellmates believed was brought on by the horror of thinking that Mrs. Lewis was dead and the guards refused to send a doctor. By this point, the silent sentinels had legal counsel working outside the prison to secure their release. This included Dudley Field Malone, who had run Wilson's re-election campaign in California and had been collector of the Port of New York before resigning in protest over the suffrage issue. And as they heard of the events of the night of the 14th, Malone and other lawyers obtained a writ of habeas corpus, ordering that the incarcerated women be brought to court. At first, Superintendent Whitaker tried to hide out in his home to avoid being served with the writ. When the suffragists finally appeared in court on November 23rd, a lot of them had to be carried in on stretchers. After their court appearance, a few of the women who were in the worst condition were paroled and the rest were sent to the district jail, where the entire group decided to go on a hunger strike together. The District of Columbia couldn't afford to to force-feed so many of them, and that, combined with the ongoing legal action, led to their release over November 27th and 28th. And we're going to talk about what happened after they were released. Uh, But first, we are going to all take a little break and hear from one of our sponsors. (music) 
ongoing cycle of demonstrations and arrests and imprisonments had roused some public sympathy for the silent sentinels, especially since several of the women involved were the wives or daughters of prominent men. This was even more true as the word started to spread of conditions at both the workhouse and the district jail. Photographs of recently released women wrapped in blankets and clearly traumatized on their way out of the facilities played a role in garnering sympathy as well. Eventually, a district court ruled that their arrests had not been justified in the first place and ordered the District of Columbia to pay all the court costs. Superintendent Whitaker and Lewis Zinkum, warden of the district jail, were both suspended and later fired. All of the high-profile arrests and the incidents that had happened while the women were incarcerated really started to make suffrage a moral issue for President Woodrow Wilson. And running in tandem with the women from the NWP being arrested and incarcerated and and having a whole high-profile horror behind bars, the National American Women's Suffrage Association had also framed itself as a patriotic organization, supporting the war effort while also diplomatically making a case that the United States making the world safe for democracy included enfranchising all of its own citizens at home, not just the male ones. So with pressure coming from multiple directions, in January of 1918, after years of being coy and evasive at best, Woodrow Wilson publicly announced his support for the constitutional amendment for women's suffrage that had been introduced all the way back in 1878 and failed every time it had come up for vote. Even with the president's support, though, it still didn't have enough congressional support to pass in both houses of Congress in 1918. So the NWP kept on with its protests, still getting arrested in cycles throughout all of this. They started lighting what they called watchfires of freedom outside of public buildings. These were urns in which they set fire to the texts of Wilson's speeches that related to freedom and democracy. They also embarked on a cross-country speaking tour in prison garb called the Prison Special. As I mentioned earlier, they kept being arrested and they kept being incarcerated, but there wasn't another incident as traumatic as the Night of Terror. Finally, after a 1918 election cycle in which the NAWSA, the NWP, and other organizations had aggressively campaigned for candidates who would support the amendment, the House of Representatives passed it in May of 1919, and the Senate followed in June. From there, the 19th Amendment needed to be ratified by 36 of the then 48 states. The NWP and other women's rights organizations kept up with their advocacy all through the rest of 1919 and into 1920. A ratification flag hung at the NWP headquarters with a new star sewn on each time a state ratified the amendment. The 19th Amendment finally got enough support from the states when Tennessee ratified it on August 18, 1920. It was signed into law on August 26, 1920. And with that, the NWP turned their focus to an equal rights amendment. The NAWSA eventually evolved into the League of Women Voters. The Equal Rights Amendment could be a whole other podcast. So... When we talk about the 19th Amendment, a lot of times we hear it as, and then women had the right to vote. But the NAWSA and the NWP's work throughout this whole period was overwhelmingly by and about white women. Both organizations were really fearful of losing the support of Southern white women and of Southern legislatures in general. So whenever the subject of race came up, they mostly worked to appease Jim Crow attitudes rather than actually working for the right to vote for all women. 
And the NWP's more radical tactics, which really were standing outside the White House until you got arrested at this point, they really effectively excluded black women, a strategy that included picketing outside the White House and being arrested and incarcerated over and over was inherently far riskier for black women than for white women. Similarly, the ultimate effects of the 19th Amendment were focused on white women. When the 19th Amendment was signed into law, it combined with the 15th Amendment to give all citizens the right to vote, regardless of sex, race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Both amendments were extremely straightforward on this point, with almost identical language, beginning, quote, the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of. And then the 19th Amendment ends that sentence with sex. The 15th Amendment ends it with race, color, or previous conditioners of servitude. But in practice, in the decades following the ratification of the 15th Amendment after the end of the Civil War, Many states had passed laws that made no reference directly to race, but they selectively made it a lot harder for people of color, particularly black people, to vote. Poll taxes disproportionately affected the black population, who were often among the nation's poorest citizens, especially since centuries of enslavement meant that many black families had been prevented from earning any money. Impossible-to-pass literacy tests were subjectively graded by white government officials, and in many states were only required of those whose grandfathers had not been registered to vote. Since most black citizens' grandfathers had not been allowed to vote, this meant that only black citizens had to take this impossible test. And outside the realm of law, white supremacist organizations like the Ku Klux Klan actively intimidated, threatened, harassed, and even murdered people to keep black citizens from voting. So even though the letter of the 19th Amendment gave all women the right to vote, and it's often celebrated as all women getting the right to vote, in practice, black women were overwhelmingly excluded from actually exercising that right. Even after the civil rights movement and the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, Discriminatory laws that don't specifically mention race but disproportionately affect minorities, particularly black people, continue to be an issue in the United States. So that's the Night of Terror and its aftermath. This is actually why sometimes on the Internet there is this picture of a bunch of women in bathing suits. They're actually eating pie. But this the caption that circulates with this picture all the time is that it's women in their bathing suits eating pizza during the suffrage movement to annoy men. Right. (laughs) And it outrages me every time I see it because the suffrage movement was not a pizza party. Right. And it was not done to annoy men. It was done at a lot of personal cost to the women involved with it to get women the right to vote. It's actually a picture of a pie-eating contest that happened like way late. It was not any kind of early suffrage thing. It was like way late in the whole movement. It had nothing to do with it. It's a pie eating contest. So every time I see it. That's one of those things that's always been so weird to me in that like someone, there's some genesis point where they looked at that picture and said, you know what? I'm going to completely lie about what this is. And like, (laughs) what was their goal? I I don't know. But you know, I have a, I have a, a, an overall rule about correcting people on the internet and and it's only to correct people if you're preventing embarrassment and or preventing harm and I will correct people on that picture because I think it's harmful to spread the idea that the suffrage movement was like a, a whimsical fun party time 
right. un- embarked upon to annoy men. <laughs> like that's... Like it, yeah. It was a fun little activity for some ladies. <laughs> that's not yeah. how it was at all. Not remotely. Do you have um pie eating contest listener mail? It's not about pie eating contest, but it is a uh less violent uh topic than than this story has been today. Um this is from Sarah, and it came in recently about our episode about Theodosia Burr Alston. And it says, the title is Another Theodosia Burr Story. Uh, and Sarah says she's been a fan of the show for many years, and she learned this story on vacation in the Outer Banks. We did a ghost tour in Manio on Roanoke Island, and Theodosia was one of the stories we heard. This is definitely a highly unlikely story told in colorful, embellished detail by our guide, who was quite a character himself, but it's interesting, and I'm paraphrasing his telling here. The Patriot was taken by pirates off the coast of Nags Head, and it was extremely violent and traumatic for the passengers. Left alive to be ransomed, Theodosia became hysterical. Direct quote, pirates are very superstitious by nature, and the one thing that terrifies them is a crazy woman. It's bad luck to have one on your ship. So they put her ashore near Nags Head and left her there. She carried her portrait with her. She was found on a beach by a banker, our first time hearing that term too, and he brought her home to his wife. She was physically ill and so traumatized by the events of the voyage that she had amnesia, but she couldn't tell them anything about herself or even her name. She remained living with the family in Nags Head, keeping the portrait hanging near her bed, never able to recall her earlier life. Many years went by until finally in 1869, Theodosia was very ill and the family called a doctor for her. The doctor cared for her as she passed away and the family, who didn't have any money, asked him if he'd be willing to accept something of value from their home in lieu of payment. He took the portrait. Ever since then, Theodosia is said to wander the beach looking for her lost portrait. Of course, the timeline here is pretty far-fetched. Theodosia would have lived to be 86 years old in this scenario, extremely unlikely given her health problems. My sister and I did a bunch of reading up on the story and came across the various versions you mentioned in the show. I just wanted to share one more with you. Thank you so much for the show. We love it, Sarah. Thank you for this story, Sarah. Yes, that indeed. is indeed pretty far-fetched. And it does sound so much like a story that you would hear on like a a, a coastal historical tour. <laughs> <laughs> I went on one of Charleston one time and I had a, a tour guide who was he was such a character and he was so funny and so knowledgeable. And also he would say things and I would kind of go, I'm not sure if that's legit. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, if you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at history podcast at howstuffworks.com. We're also at missed in history all across our social media. And if you come to our website, which is mistinhistory.com, you will find show notes for all the episodes Holly and I have ever worked on together and a searchable archive of every episode ever. So come and see us at mistinhistory.com. 